Hello and welcome to the Curious Cult Podcast, the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. I am your obsessively curious host, Nick Harrell-Ambus, and today I'm privileged to be talking to Geraldine de Ritter about her curiosity. Geraldine is an acclaimed author, world-renowned public speaker, and the voice behind the award-winning Everywhereist blog. While ostensibly a travel writer, Geraldine also writes about dessert, feminism, and a variety of other riveting topics. Time magazine described her work as consistently clever, and the New York Times said her writing was dark and hilarious. Her blog has received accolades from The Independent, Forbes magazine, and The Huffington Post, because sometimes feature editors get drunk, apparently. When not on the road with her long-suffering and infinitely patient husband, Rand, who is also a guest on this podcast, Geraldine can be found in Seattle, usually fighting with people on the internet. So the first question that I tend to ask, were you curious as a child? Yeah, I was thinking about this a lot. And from what I remember, because it's hard to have perspective of who you were as a kid, right? Um, So I was actually this very cautious and kind of anxious child by nature. I think it was by upbringing. My mother came to America right as I was born, basically. Uh, So I was the first child born over here. I was the first girl in that generation of my family. So everybody was super anxious, I think, just about what that meant. You know, like we have a girl now and there had been seven male grandchildren before me. And now there was me. And I was American. And I think that everybody freaked out a little bit. Everyone was super worried about me and I wasn't allowed to go very far from the house. And there was a lot of restraints kind of on what I was allowed to do. That being said, my mother would tell me I would do things like, you know, they would have plants around the house, like around the yard, and the plants would in the springtime have berries and they were not edible plants, but I would still eat them. And I have a vague recollection of my mother, like panicked fishing things out of my mouth. (laughs) Is that because you were hungry or curious? Yes. (laughs) She, she said that was how I was experiencing the world. And I, yeah, I like that concept. So I think I was, despite the restraints, I think I was a curious child. And where did your family come from? My mother's from Rome. So she left, but she actually left Germany to come to America. So it's kind of a convoluted story, but my father was from Ukraine. And then he and his family, when he was very small, almost got sent to the gulags. But they managed to make their way to Germany, which was under uh, Nazi rule at the time. So not a great, not a great time for my grandmother or my dad or uncle. And so they ended up in a displaced persons camp in Germany, which is not the worst camp you could be in at the time, as my husband is so quick to remind me. Uh, (laughs) And then they made it to New York. And then my father joined the US military and traveled all around and he was stationed in Rome. And that's where he met my mother in the 70s. Wow, that was a really well-told praises of, I'm sure, a very long and complicated story. (laughs) I try and shorten it because all the details are bonkers. But yeah, they were uh, they were very international. And my mom's still my mom's still around, but my father passed away a few years ago. So unfortunately, I can't ask him all the follow-up questions that I have about his life. (laughs) 
I mean, that's a really interesting familial background because as being Greek and half Greek, half Cypriot, my parents always had that phrase that they wanted for me better than they had for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure you got that, but that made them relatively conservative in what better meant. And um, mm. when you think of conservative, that means that when I told them I wanted to be a journalist and a war correspondent, they absolutely plutzed, to use an appropriate word. And they wanted me to be a lawyer and an accountant. So do you feel like your family's story led them to be more conservative or give you more freedom? Gosh, it's a hard question. So because my parents split up, essentially when I was born, you know, my, I always say my mother left Europe and my dad in, in kind of one fell swoop. I got very different perspectives kind of from both of them. I would say the one unifying factor I got was, you know, you are going to college and you are going to have uh, some professional career that is intellectually uh, interesting, you know, and taxing to some degree. I think that had it been, you know, my father was in the military, in the U.S. military for 45 years. And I think if it had been kind of him, uh, I, I can't even say that. I would say that my father's perspective would have been more rigorous and, you know, you need security and you need a job that is very stable. But at the same time, he was someone who did not dictate and very much wanted people to do their own thing. And then my mother is 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 very bohemian and is just like, pursue your bliss regardless of whether or not it's financially viable. Yeah, viable. So yeah, so I, I would say that it tended towards choose your own path, but be responsible about it. And obviously, you know, you are going to do certain things in a certain way. And that means you're going to get good grades and you're going to go to college. But because my mother raised me primarily and she was more of this free spirit, I actually leaned towards more conservatism with my actions and, and and I'm a lot more like my dad. So yeah, so she and I always had friction and the joke was that she was the teenager and I was the grown up. That is very interesting. And aside from your parents, and I'm an exclude Rand, your your doting husband, can you think (laughs) of anyone in your life who sparked a deeper curiosity that led you down the path that you're on? Like, was there one person you thought, oh man, I'm going to be an author or I need to think about this thing? Wow. I mean, I would say- Or many people. I would say that there were a lot of writers who I read when I was younger, especially in those young formative years that I thought, well, I want to do this. Like, this is the life that I want. Can you and, some of them? Yeah, they're really obscure and it's kind of funny. So there was this right this author, Zilpha Keatley Snyder. I know, I know. She's a children's book author, but she would write these books that were kind of I, I don't want to say horror, but they were almost like thrillers for children, but very highbrow thrillers. So she wrote a book called The Headless Cupid and The Witches of Worm and The Egypt Game. They were these very, they almost had these occult-like themes. There's one where a young woman gets a cat. That's The Witches of Worm. And the cat is possessed by basically this evil spirit. And it would talk to her. And eventually like she she forms a sort of quasi amicable relationship with this evil demonic spirit that's in her cat and i know i know i was this is dark how old are you 10 reading this book um, that's and amazing then the cat essentially sacrifices itself to save her 
and the cat survives, but the evil demonic spirit is purged. And she's sitting there scratching its head, and I'll never forget the line. She goes, I'm sorry you died, worm. I really am. But the cat's alive, right? She, so she's mourning the loss of this kind of spirit inside the cat. Super messed up book to read I mean, as a 10-year-old. bought this book for you? Uh, it was at the school library. Wow. It was okay. at my elementary school library. And so I would read really strange. I would, I was checking out some really strange books at the school library. Why the school had these books, I have no idea. It was this tiny Feels school. Like that's a whole nother episode. Yeah, we will. I mean, there could be an entire story written about like, they were like, these books were not anywhere in the record. Like, we don't know where they came from. So she, like, I loved that but it was really strange and obscure stuff that I kind of pursued and so that was one of the authors I remember the most then I read you know I read fluff as well when I was a kid I read all of the babysitters club books (laughs) religiously which I I don't know if you're familiar with but in in the U.S. I think there's something like a conservative estimate is there's you know probably 18,000 of these books (laughs) and it is about uh, a group of young women in Connecticut (laughs) (laughs) which by the way is one of my favorite words is it really Connecticut. I know the spelling of it is bonkers, but you know you don't you don't pronounce you don't pronounce the middle C. Of course, but that's what makes it such an you spell it Connecticut. Yes, and I just love that. That's amazing. Can I ask you something? Can you find it on a map? Uh, no. I can't either, but I think, it, I think it's more appalling that I can't. I have no idea about U.S. geography. I am oh, terrible amazing. at it. I yeah. can find you Colorado because I've snowboarded there, but that's like the limits outside of the big ones. I think I could find Colorado. It's, okay. it's bigger and further south than you think it is. Exactly how I remember it generally. Yeah. Um, but and just to show that your curiosity does not extend to geography, and that is okay. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So I'm curious about uh, these books when you were a kid. Did they kind of spark you to go, hmm, let me think about what like demonic possession is? And then did you go down the rabbit hole there? I. I didn't, but what they did do is I, I just, it fed me wanting to read more of them. So if I read, and what I would do is, and I still do this, if I find an author I like, or if I find kind of a, a, a maker of any kind, so a musician or a celebrity or a director or uh, anything that I like, I will essentially binge it. So I did that as a kid. I would find one author, you know, I would find it would be Lois Lowry or it would be Snyder, who I was mentioning, who wrote all those occult-like books. And I would just plow through them. And to this day, I still do that. You know, I found an author I liked earlier this year and I read four of her books in a month. And there was yeah, it's bonkers. It's just, I get very excited and I just want to consume more. And there was a time when Rand and I were dating early on and I had this obsession with Cary Grant okay. uh, and I would refuse, like, I was like, I don't, and this was back when, do you remember when Netflix would send you the DVDs? We didn't have that version you of Netflix back deep, deep in South Africa, but I'm okay. well versed in the story. 
Okay, yeah. So for those of your listeners who may not be familiar with how it works or how it did work, is there was a time in the kind of early to mid 2000s where you would get a Netflix subscription and it was based on how many DVDs they could send you at once. And so I think it was something like $10 a month and they would mail you DVDs. And Rand, you know, Rand and I went through, this was our entertainment when we were kind of young and broke. And I refused to watch anything but Cary Grant movies. I was like, no, this is what I want to watch. So we went through a ton of Cary Grant movies and we eventually branched out. I think he got me to watch like some Jimmy Stewart. But yeah, it, so that, my, my curiosity, I think Rand's, Rand's comment about obsessiveness is a very good way of characterizing it. I don't, it sounds like that's how he characterized it for himself, but I think that probably applies to me too. And interesting, I think it's going to be a consistent theme as I uncover more and more about curiosity with each of my guests. It Mm -hmm. does seem like obsession is the thing that for whatever reason you become hooked and you just obsess until you are an expert, basically. Right, right. Or just weird (laughs) or just weird and saturated yes weird and saturated that's a great way of putting Um, it so i wanted to ask uh how you choose what to focus on when this curiosity kind of sparks um i I think there's this theme amongst uh, entrepreneurs authors and anyone who's conscious of their life at the moment that it's more important what you say no to than what you say yes to And for me, when curiosity sparks, it's just like we say, it's obsessive and I have to force myself to go, okay, no, I don't want to spend the next 10 years discussing this in my life. Like, let me find something else or hell yeah, let's go as deep as we can go. Like, how do you curate what you choose? So it's interesting because I would say there are kind of two aspects to my curiosity and there is the personal and there is the professional and sometimes they intertwine and sometimes they don't. And so on the personal, it is a lot more freeform and I can, I can sort of pursue whatever I want until I get exhausted with it or bored or hit a dead end. And I think that's what a lot of people do. And so it becomes, all right, I'm going to watch this TV show until I grow tired of it. I'm currently throwing pottery on the wheel. I don't know if you've ever done that. No, but my partner Jen has. Yeah. Um, and she's quite familiar with that. So I've watched her. All of our dinner plates and bowls, she has made herself. Oh, that's awesome. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. So I've been doing that for the last year and a half and I really enjoy it. And so I'm still pursuing that, right? I haven't gotten tired of that. And and you know, one thing leads to another where it's like, well, I'm throwing pots on the wheel. Am I going to am I going to hand build clay, which is, you know, just forming it on its own and, and doing something there. So all of that has kind of been choose your own adventure, you know? And there is no there's no direction. And so it's it's fine as long as it doesn't interfere with work. Okay. Now the problem is, of course it does. And so right now I'm working on a new book and I'm working on a, a fiction book, which is different than anything I've ever done before. And this is deeply nerve wracking. And part of the thing that people tell you is that you need to, when you're working on a book, is that you need to read in the genre that you want to write in. And that's one of the best ways to essentially practice and get research done. So I am one of the main tracks to getting this, to getting any book done is that you need to step away from the book and read other books. And that in itself is its own wormhole. 
Yeah. And which is can be dangerous, you know, I told and there was a I, I've gotten a bit better, but there was a point earlier this year, I think it was January, you know, Rand came in from his office, which is in the back of our house. Uh, he came in and I was sitting at the kitchen table and I had been sitting there since breakfast and it was now 1 p.m. And I was like, oh, God, I had just picked up my book to read during breakfast. And now, you know, three or four hours have gone by. So that is something to kind of keep tabs on. And then the other thing is, you know, I'm doing research specifically for this book, Hmm. which is, I'm not comfortable talking about the book yet. It's too early, but I can talk about the research, which is, you know, I've been going down these wormholes of uh, shipping patterns and how and how cargo ships move through the Columbia River, which is a major waterway that runs between Oregon and Washington State. And I live in Washington State. And what happens is ships will come from uh, Japan or Korea. Sometimes they will come up from, uh, from further south, from Mexico, and they will come down the Columbia, they will stop in Astoria, and then they will head back up to Vancouver, they might head to Seattle, they might go to Portland. And I'm listening to shipping podcasts about the the shipping patterns of cargo ships and what they carry. And I went down this wormhole. And so like, I had all this information and I didn't want to blurt it out to some poor, like innocent person in my house. But of course we have friends over for brunch and we're talking about it. And I'm like, well, a lot of what they take through the Columbia is soda ash. And somebody goes, well, what's soda ash? And I'm like, I'm glad you asked. It's used in the, in the creation and refinement of glass. Anyway, the way that you can tell which cargo <laughs> ships are carrying soda ash is this. And I'm like, I need to calm down because the excitement that I feel about this <laughs> is not, you know, is not comparable to the excitement that anyone else will feel. So it, that is, you know, that's the wormhole that I'm down now. And like a lot of grain comes through this area. And I was researching how grain is loaded onto ships. Because if you asked me, I would assume that the grain would come in containers, of yeah. some kind. No, they open the hull of a ship and then they no. litter it. Yes. They open, wow. they, they clean out the hull of a ship of these massive cargo ships. That doesn't feel very sanitary. So apparently because the grain hasn't been refined yet, it's oh. kind of okay. And so they, they, but they do have a lot of uh, sanitation checks. So they have to check for, why are you asking me follow-up questions? Look what I'm doing, Nick. <laughs> I'm talking but, about. But this is the essence of this entire podcast. Right. Uh, you know what the word that I was going to use is infectious. Curiosity yeah. is infectious because I am riveted by learning this because you are. Right. It's so weird. I, I, I genuinely wanted to know if that was sanitary. I wasn't asking to be polite. Yeah. No, and I wondered that too. I'm like, how is it clean? But apparently the refinement happens afterwards. So it's just almost like a raw material. Yeah. And I could talk about how I could talk about grain transport in cargo ships for probably another half hour. But this is where, you know, you go down these wormholes and yeah. 
It's very strange. It's it's answering questions that you didn't know you had. Precisely because you're following this really odd obsession that you've discovered. Yes. yes. And one thing that I think, one thing that you kind of mentioned, and one thing that you asked me earlier is, how do you know what to follow and what to let go? I think that that's a really hard question to answer. And what I have found is a lot of times for a book project, I just start doing all of the research with the understanding that not all of it is going to make it into, you know, the article that I'm working on or or the book that I'm working on. But I know that it's in a way it's almost world building. And so you have that information. So if you need to, it can come in and you also can make sure that you don't break any rules because you know what that world looks like. So I'm not going to, you know, if I'm writing about grain transport, I'm not going to say that they're hauling bags of grain because I know that's not true. Even if it never comes up, I know not to make those mistakes. Well, absolutely. Because it also, it breaks that wall of trust that your reader has with you if you're saying the wrong thing and one of them happens to know. So your curiosity is actually just building your foundation to be more authentic. Absolutely. You need to, you need to become an authority. And I, and I'm sure you've experienced this. If you know about a topic that is featured in TV or in a book, and you know something that the author or the writer or the producer doesn't, it, yeah, it shatters for you. Yeah. Absolutely. Something I, I dealt with with my psychologist, who I call my mental coach, to help uh-huh. people be a bit more comfortable with me talking about it. Oh, um, well, the, the good news is, and I, I don't know if you notice, is like that there is no stigma about therapy in the US mostly. And that's great. So yeah. I always preface this because other readers in less open communities, uh, sorry, other listeners, they struggle with the idea. So men in South Africa, it's a big yeah. no no. You do yeah. not go to seek therapy. It's like a negative thing. My psychologist helped me to realize that I have this problem with growing my knowledge base, that I thrust that knowledge upon other people, whether they want it or not, and I manipulate conversations. So I will find ways at dinner parties, or I used to at least, to target the conversation towards a topic that I'm researching and then overwhelm everyone with that topic until they choose to leave. So my curiosity actually manifests itself in relatively negative ways too, because honestly, what's good for me is not good for everyone else. And I force it on people because I'm quite a manipulative talker. So it's interesting that you also find yourself having to pull back at brunch, talking about refineries and things. Oh, I think, and I think it's a pretty common thing. We all want to talk about the things that we want to talk about, Yeah. right? I mean, I think that that's a kind of a universal tendency. And so, yeah, I don't, I, a lot of that I would say falls into the realm of just being human. And then you have to kind of check it and be like, okay, what's the empathetic response here? The empathetic response is to not overwhelm everyone, but that's hard, especially when you're excited about something. Yeah, when you're passionate. Absolutely. Okay. So you did mention personal life and the professional life. I, I'm interested in that frivolous nature of curiosity. So when I talk to businesses, I try and help them understand that curiosity is not an efficient way to arrive at a solution, but often it is the best way. So I am curious about how you factor in, okay, I need to do work now, or I need to do frivolous curiosity. Like, how do you actually define those two things? Because doesn't the one get the other? Aren't you thinking about writing when you're throwing clay? 
I'm absolutely thinking about writing when I'm throwing clay and I'm thinking about throwing clay when I'm writing. And I think that you need to, you need that because you need to step away. It's how our brains are able to kind of function, right? Is that if we stay too long on one project, we'll go bonkers. And so you need to think about the other project or you need to like walk away. And then all of a sudden your brain has space to be able to think about, you know, if I'm trying to resolve a plot issue or I can't seem to get over a certain paragraph or something, I find that if I go for a walk or if I if I distract myself or you kind of pursue that other path of interest, you are able to relax your head enough, get it out of the space it's in to be able to do the work that needs to be done. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think no, it that, does. Yeah. yeah, I think the thing is there's no clear there's no clear line of demarcation, at least for me between the two, and I think that's why I have so much trouble getting things done. <laughs> and and you know, with that said, I think that's how you feel about life. But from the outside, you have successfully published books, you have a successful blog, you have a successful Twitter account, you have a successful personal life. So. I, I suppose my point is we always feel like we're distracted and not achieving when actually our distractions are achievements. Wow. Can I, I just need you like a recording. Obviously I will have that once the show goes up. <laughs> I just need a recording of you saying that repeatedly because that is yes. so, it's so I need that too. It's so affirming. Well, and it's funny too, how I never thought about, I always thought about a lot of these things in a very negative light. So Rand and I, like Rand and I will be watching TV and I have a very, I have very good facial recognition and very good name recognition, which is great for him because he doesn't. So okay. we, will, we will go to conferences and he will, he will see someone who he knows and who he likes. He's like, yeah. I know that person. I like that person. Oh God. what? <laughs> is there? And I'll pull him aside and I'm like, that's so-and-so. Yeah. They're married to this person. They have two yeah. kids. They live here. Here's where you last met them. And he's like, right. And I just see like the anxiety leave and he goes and talks to that person. And so I have this, this facial recognition ability. And so part of it is when we're watching a TV show, you know, we'll see someone and I'm like, oh, that actor was in this, that, and the other. And then I'm like, what else were they in? So of course I'm looking up their entire filmography on my phone. On IMDb, yeah. Right. While the TV is playing. And so then I'm processing all of that. So it and I always thought, this is terrible. Just pay attention to the show. But framing it as I am curious really Absolutely. makes it less of a judgment, which I like. And the next time Rand says to you, could you focus on the TV show? You can say to him, Hey, I'm working on my facial and name recognition. Oh, and Thank he's also much. learned never to add, never. There he, you go. Yeah, he knows. He knows what he married. Um, okay, so tell me about what you think about innovation. Like, how would you define or explain it to someone? And obviously, it can be in your context. I'm, I'm curious about that word in relation to curiosity. I mean, I think that innovation is a new approach to solving an old problem. Huh. That's I mean, that's... Succinct. That's what I, I, you know, that's what I think it is. I think from a dictionary definition, you probably have something different. I think innovation doesn't actually specifically talk about problem solving, but that's how I regard it. And in terms of curiosity, like, I, I don't see how the two couldn't go hand in hand. 
right? Yeah, like yeah, you, need to, couldn't, couldn't you need more, to, yeah. you, you need to go down these wormholes. You need to think about the problems. You, you need to think about the ways that other people have solved problems. And then, uh, you know, sometimes you need to step away from it all and go throw some pots and suddenly you have the answer. And the incredible part and the observation that I'm making through writing my book about curiosity and innovation is oftentimes people will want to innovate without doing the hard work of being curious about the problem. They want to just arrive at the innovation. And you can't. You unequivocally can't. You have to be obsessed with the problem. Oh, um, absolutely. You have yeah. to understand. And I think that's true across I think that's true across a lot of things. Like this is really embarrassing, but my gym plays the 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 TV show Shark Tank. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with this? Yes, absolutely. Okay, I had never seen it before, but it, it plays on at my gym, and so I switch between that and CNN, which has been very sure. bad for my my psyche. Um, and so, one of the things that they always talk about, and I do think that this is really helpful, is they're like, "You have not understood the problem that you're trying to solve," mm. and and that's true. They haven't understood the customer base. They haven't understood the depth of the issue, and it's yeah. And I think that that's really important. Interesting. Okay, a couple a couple more questions for you that are a little bit more topical. Okay. Um, did did good old Mario Batali make you curious about cinnamon rolls and Martha Stewart, or was it just write that article and be done with it? So I have always been a baker, and I've always I've always had a, like a pretty good wealth of knowledge about the science of baking. And I would say I bake to the point where, you know, in, in the U.S., a lot of our recipes are not in measurements. They're one cup or whatever. Which is infuriating. Which is infuriating. I'm fed up by this, so I've just basically memorized most of it. So, you know, I know a cup of flour is 128 grams and a cup of cocoa powder is 100 grams. You know, that one's easy. And a cup of sugar is roughly 225 grams if you're talking about granulated sugar. That has made it a lot easier for me to convert recipes. But that's the level, like that's how often I bake, right? That I, I've memorized all of this. So It's an obsession, a deep obsession. It is a deep obsession. And I go very deep down the wormholes of baking. And the other day, my mother, who is who is staying with us right now, came to the room and she's like, what are you reading? And I'm like, a baking cookbook? <laughs> I'm reading recipes. <laughs> so, so I think I always had a curiosity about baking. And I think it was actually that curiosity and that knowledge that enabled me to look at his recipe and know how wrong it was. Because I knew from just looking at his recipe that this was that it was wrong. It wasn't going to work, and, and on so many levels too, not just the literal sense. Oh, of course, yeah. On just the the tone and appropriateness of it, you yeah. don't do that. So, yeah, it absolutely was was an example of just not being able to read the room on his part. And so, because I saw that it was wrong on these two vectors, I think I was able to write about it in that way. I was like, okay, like you're you made a shitty recipe, and also, what are you doing? So I can address all of this. And isn't that a beautiful way to illustrate how your personal curiosities and obsessions can work so well with your professional life, and they can come together in such unexpected and odd ways? Yeah, 
It's really true. For me, I was just writing something that kind of in a lot of ways I wanted to write and that interested me. And I was also shocked that no one had made, and for people who might not know or who might need background on this, Mario Batali, who was quite a famous celebrity chef here in the United States, and I think a little bit in Europe as well, he sexually harassed and allegedly assaulted, but I think the charges for the assault were dropped because there wasn't really enough evidence or the, uh, somebody wouldn't testify. I mean, it, it's hard to get those things prosecuted, as I'm sure you've heard. But he he essentially had all of these allegations against him, and he sent out an apology letter for the allegations. And at the end of the apology letter, he included a recipe for cinnamon rolls. And everyone was horrified by this, understandably, But the thing that I thought was interesting is nobody bothered to make the recipe. (laughs) That is great. And then you did. A month went by and, or no, like two, two weeks went by and no one made the recipe. And finally I was on the road. And when I got home, I thought, okay, if nobody's done this by the time I get home, I'm going to do it. Amazing. So a a really relevant follow-up question there, and this is a little bit more serious, but does Twitter make you curious or sad about the human race? You you have a very prominent Twitter account. I love it. Um, Thank you. People people love to hate you. uh, (laughs) Between your Joker and Martha Stewart, and like you, you must experience extremes on Twitter of humanity. So how does it make you feel? Curious or sad? I do experience extremes um, on Twitter and and just in general. It's really interesting. Yesterday I got, you know, I got a little bit of hate and then I got somebody who wrote to me and said, I can't wait for you to finish this book you're working on because I really want to read more of your stuff. So I, it's, it's a yeah. bonkers mix. I, I think it's both. I think it makes me curious. And then sometimes what I find is depressing and then sometimes you're pleasantly surprised. Did you happen to come across Tim Ferriss's blog post on his advice if you want to be famous? No, I, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I have shied away from Tim Ferriss because of that. Tim Ferriss, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, Colleen, no, what this, particular, this particular article was very poignant on, the, the theme is be careful what you wish for, um, mm. that he, he had to move, he's had to never mention where he's going, he's had to uh, remove references of his family's names, his girlfriends, yeah. um, his business partners, because people will fly to where he's going to be and meet him. It's, yeah. it's, it's bonkers. So, I mean, I can only imagine what you're experiencing on Twitter is, is similar, that you get the, the absolute worst of the worst and then these flashes of hope. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting. So we did get a home security system based on some stuff that we got on Twitter, just some creepy stuff uh, that came through. And Rand was like, well, we shouldn't, there's no reason why we shouldn't do this. So we went ahead and got a home security system. And I I don't blog as much about travel now. But even when I did, I never blogged about it in real time. So I always blogged about a trip after we got home. So people would say, oh, I see you're in, you know, Paris right now. I'm like, nope. I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm smarter home. than you are, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I'm home. And so that, and I try not to post too much about where we're going or if we're not home. I try not to post that. So it's usually after the fact if I do. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Okay. And my final question, what is keeping you up at night right now? The U.S. election. 
Okay. Yeah. Do you want to dive any deeper into that? No, yeah, I absolutely could. So, I mean, I don't know, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with our, our oh, the whole world is very familiar with your system, okay. your primaries, the whole bang shoot. Okay. I mean, Trevor Noah is in the daily show now. So everyone yeah, around the is. world follows it. Yeah. I mean, this is the interesting, this is the interesting thing about American politics is that we are very insular, uh, within America, but we blast it out. So everybody knows what's going on with us. And we have the luxury and privilege of not really paying attention to what's going on with everyone else. Our elections are in November. And right now we basically have two parties. There's some argument that we would have three parties, but we don't. Essentially, we have a two-party system. Um, we have the Republicans, who uh, Trump is the head of the Republican Party, and right, and then we have the Democrats. Um, and I have, and my family has always historically been the, a Democratic family. We're way more liberal and not at all conservative in any metric. And so right now, we're looking for the the candidate who will be the Democratic candidate for president. It is very it is a very strange primary system where basically state by state delegates are assigned based on caucuses. So you go as a registered voter and you are not required to go, but you will go to a location and then you will organize yourself by district and then you will say who you are supporting and then you move into little groups and you'll you know it'll be like 15 people here and 10 people here and based on how many delegates are assigned to a particular district the number of people you have will be able you'll be like okay well we have 10 people here that's one delegate we have 20 people here so that person gets two delegates we have 15 people here and 15 people here. So that means there's three delegates between the two of those people. Who's going to get that that second delegate? We're going to flip a coin. It's that ridiculous. Like it's it's a very arbitrary process and it's pretty broken. So we're in the delegation. We're in that process now. We're in the caucusing process. It is stressing me out because I I just don't I think it's a broken system. And right now Bernie is the front runner. And I, I actually, I, he's not my first pick, but I like Bernie Sanders. But then there's a lot of questions about all sorts of things, whether he's a- Like whether he could beat Trump. Whether he could beat Trump. I kind of think he could, actually. I mean, the whole world is hoping he could. I mean, the um, whole world, but yeah. I got to tell you, from the outside perspective, there, there really isn't a democratic system that does work. And as frustrated as you are with the two-party system, in South Africa, we have what's known as a proportional representation system. Mm-hmm. So anyone who gets sufficient votes will be represented in government. So we have at any time anything between 15, 20 different parties that are all represented in parliament. So if you win 300 votes, you get one seat in parliament and you get paid to be there. And our issue is that we have a split system. So all of the opposition tries to not give the majority party a majority, which is 65% in South Africa. If they get 65%, they're allowed to change the constitution. And South Africa's constitution is one of the most progressive in the world. We were one of the first countries to legalize gay marriage. I remember Um, that in 1998. Exactly. There's a whole slew of things. Curiosity, look at that. Yeah. 
Like yeah. it's that, right? <laughs> so to make you sleep slightly better, there is no democratic system that actually works. That is what I've come to with my politics, philosophy, and journalism degree. We all suck and we need a better version <laughs> of democracy. <laughs> that makes me feel marginally better. Yeah, um, just marginally. And that's, that's all I was going Marginally for. better. Yeah. So our system is broken. Yes. And there's a lot of talk about Russian interference. They, and that is you know, terrifying. And and the way that Russian interference works, I was listening to Gary Kasparov talk about this yesterday, is, you know, obviously Putin is in favor of Trump. And he's made that very clear. And Trump is denying this, which is really interesting because Putin stood next to him. Uh, I believe they were in Helsinki and literally said, I want Trump to be reelected. And so the fact that the president is denying that that happened is really alarming. So all of that you know, and and the uh, some FBI official, I can't remember who it was, said, you know, the the whole goal of Russia right now and the whole goal of Putin right now is to basically make sure that the U.S. tears itself apart. And I think that they're doing a really good job. Yeah, and it's not surprising that that keeps you up at night. Yeah, so that coronavirus is stressing me out a little. Fair. There yeah. is enough stuff to keep you up at night. Yeah. And and coronavirus, I don't know. It, it's interesting. It's not stressing me out because of, uh, you know, the way that a lot of people think, you know, I've been talking to my husband about it and he's like, look, it's only marginally, or it's not even more dangerous than the flu, I don't think. No, no, it's, it isn't. It's, um, it's, it's this about- This year alone, more people have died from the flu. Yeah, it's more, it's less aggressive than the flu. But what I am worried about is- the measures that countries are taking, are, I don't mm. think are good. So we're supposed to travel next month to Italy, which has the most cases of coronavirus in Europe. And my concern is that we might hit some bureaucratic barriers to where we end up getting quarantined or something yeah. happens. So that is, that is something else that's kind of stressing me out. So Thank you. That is not stressing me out too. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Sure. Also, I heard that, heard that part of the reason that people are so concerned is just the way in which it spreads, which is it's a lot more contagious than the flu. Mm. Have you read a book called Station Eleven? I have not, but I will add it to my Goodreads. It's a wonderful book, and it starts with this deadly flu that basically ravages um, almost all of humanity. Love, love those kinds of books. Post-apocalyptic. Yeah. This is what the world will look like. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's yep. basically present day, a flu ravages the world, and then it, it jumps forward about 20 years in time to what's left. Amazing. Yeah. I will go and read that. And on that bombshell, I want to thank oh, you so much for giving me so much of your time. Oh, this you. was illuminating and i can't wait for your second book to come out oh my gosh thank you so much i am so nervous about that i'm gonna go research right now i'm gonna go brilliant shipping patterns (laughs) amazing geraldine thank you so much thank you for your time nick this was fun thank you for listening to the curious cult podcast the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity If you like this episode, please rate the show, like it, share it, and generally be kind to us and tell people about it. My goal is to spark curiosity that changes the world. And you can help by talking about the show to anyone who will listen. Stay curious. Until next time.